This is Something to Gnaw On, a podcast for the Christian with a short attention span or just short on time. Designed to give you something to mentally or spiritually gnaw on throughout your day. And I'm your host, Nate Finio. This episode is Bears and Brothers. It's another story from my time in Alaska, and for what it's worth, this story transpires a couple of weeks after the episode titled Bears and Grandmas. You might want to check that one out, too. Quote, Yes, though I walk through the deep, sunless valley of the shadow of death, I will fear or dread no evil. You are with me. Your rod to protect and your staff to guide, they comfort me. That's Psalm 23, verse 4 in the Amplified Version. And I would add here that sometimes you have no fear because you're deeply spiritual and understand how near God is to you and how involved He is in your life. Then there are those who are so ignorant of the risks in life, so self-absorbed, that they are blissfully ignorant of the danger. This story most likely highlights the latter. God blessed our trip in ways we could not have predicted. We set out from Anchorage and had a full view of Mount McKinley. The only obstructions were the occasional tree too close to the road. It was one of those moments where you sit back and just think silently to yourself, this is going to be a great trip. And seeing McKinley was great. If you're one of those who likes to go places where everyone else has been, think about it. Someone takes a picture of some grand place and posts it on the internet or in National Geographic and with some great story, and it resonates with something deep in your spirit, and a longing is sown, and you begin thinking, wouldn't it be nice to go there, to experience that, to drink in the beauty of God's creation there? That may describe you, but it was on this trip that it became clear to me that I would rather shoot the picture than buy the magazine or surf the net or read somebody else's story and follow in their footsteps. I want to create the footsteps. We reached Denali and rode through the park in buses. In groups, we were herded from point A to point B. Everywhere you went, you saw nothing different than the millions of tourists before you, seeing the same scenery, walking the same trails, feeding the same Arctic ground squirrels, these squirrels, by the way, were the evidence that there had been a million tourists before you. They were more the size of a well-fed 10-year-old arthritic house cat. Anyhow, something within me was beginning to break. I'd been blessed to be there for sure, standing at the foot of McKinley, no clouds, in full view of God's handiwork. Yet I wasn't fulfilled. It seemed so anticlimactic, so cheap and average. I wanted something more daring, more adventurous, more exciting. A day or two later, this would all change, thanks to a friend named Bobby. You might remember him from the episode titled, Bears and Grandmas. We left an alley to set out and spend the last days of our trip off the beaten path. Somewhere between Denali and Anchorage, we found Peters Creek. More accurately, we found a dirt road and got off the road most traveled. We drove for miles and finally scouted a spot next to the creek that we could pitch our tents and set up a working camp. The beauty of it was that we ultimately had to create the campsite by cutting brush, stomping weeds, and constructing our own fire ring. Dinner that night was a beautiful thing. 
fresh trout and grayling cooked over a huge fire, all on the shores of Peters Creek. As far off the beaten path as we were camping, given all the inherent dangers of the Alaskan wilds, it still wasn't enough to scratch the itch of adventure for me. I was still in a herd of 20-plus guys, and the truck was only 20 feet from a tent. In this group of guys was a small contingent of fly fishermen. When you put five of us guys together on some remote creek in Alaska, no matter the background, no matter the political opinion, no matter their take on eschatology, they're on a mission to find prime water to fish. And being of one mind to find that water, we set out early the next morning to find our Shangri-La fishing spot. We drove several more miles down the dirt road, scouting from the windows for a stretch of creek that would sustain all five fishermen and was accessible. Finally, as the road began to climb and cut into the hillside, we were able to see the valley floor from a whole new perspective, and we believe we found the perfect spot. We parked the vehicle, geared up, and lined up on the side of the road overlooking the valley and devised a plan to get to the creek. It was beautiful. The creek snaked through the lush green valley floor. The vegetation appeared pretty low, knee-high at best. The creek was about 200 yards from where we were standing, notwithstanding the minor detail of the 150-foot almost vertical drop to get from the road to the valley floor. Have you ever been there? On the edge of something great? Seeing where you could be with a little effort, but paralyzed by taking the first step or leap? That's where we were. That water called my name as it did each of the other four. There was no turning back. We were on the precipice of something great and we knew it. Anyone could have driven that road, though few did. And though few had seen this sight, we were about to do what few, if any, had ever done. We ended up spreading out, each man looking for a way down. After five minutes or so into my survey of the situation, I heard a scream or a holler from Bobby's direction. And to this day, there's a standing four-to-one debate on whether it was a scream or a holler, fear or excitement. Anyhow, I turned quickly to see Billy in what I can only describe as some flying kick martial arts style position, sliding down the incline to the valley floor. With his right hand, he held his fly rod high so as not to damage it. He had one leg out in front of him so as not to tumble forward. He had his other leg bent backwards and he was basically sitting on his heel, presumably to keep from ripping a hole in the butt of his waders. And with his last free appendage, he balanced himself. The four of us ran over to where Bobby had launched and watched him dusting off his waders at the bottom, saying he was okay. And what followed can only be described as lemming behavior. One by one, the remaining four men at the edge of the road would step off, somewhat pensively, and assume the flying kick slide, one leg forward, one heel to sit on, fly rod high in the air, and a free hand to balance with. The ultimate thought here was that if Bobby could do it, then anyone could do it. We didn't understand where his usually apprehensive behavior had ran off to when he decided to take the lead on this, but whatever got into him, there wasn't one of the four of us remaining that was going to stand on that ledge while Bobby had already conquered the challenge. The irony of the whole situation wouldn't hit us till the last man came skidding down. Huddled up, dusting ourselves off and checking our equipment for breakage, someone asked Bobby 
what inspired him to take that first step and to be the first one down. And to this day, I'm amazed at his response. He slipped. The ground gave way as he got too close to the edge, and by the time he yelled, he was easily 10 to 15 feet down the incline. Not one of us was focused on him. We were all intently focused on finding our own way down the impossible incline. So much so that we didn't see him slip to begin with. As we turned from our laughter, having followed a guy who had slipped, we realized that we were committed at this point. We realized that, due to our previous perspective, we had grossly misjudged the height of the vegetation. What we had thought was knee-high vegetation and brush was actually the canopy of some small trees or large brush tightly grown together. It was about 8 to 10 feet tall, and it had totally obstructed our view of the creek. Our distance from the river had been reduced by getting down into the valley, and in that sense, we had only made about 10 to 20 feet of linear progress, but our perspective had significantly changed. Unable to see the creek, we began in its general direction, only 200 yards of dense underbrush and vegetation to go. We broke our fly rods down, loaded the sawed-off pistol grip 12-gauge with alternating rounds of shot and slug, and walked hunched over and even crawling a significant part of the time, weaving in and out of the stalks and stepping over exposed root systems. A few short steps into this crawl to the creek, I saw a bear track. A big bear track. I can understand a bear moving quickly through this terrain, but if you're over five foot tall, you were severely handicapped in this situation. We were in a maze of bear tunnels. Yes, it was dangerous. Yes, it was frustrating at times. You knew the goal was right in front of you, despite the fact that you couldn't see it through the brush. Yes, it evoked a degree of fear. You cannot crawl on your hands and knees on a bear trail and not have the thought of being mauled by a bear cross your mind. In fact, that particular thought crossed my mind every time I crossed any kind of a bear sign, be it a track, a hare, or scat. And each time I somehow found solace in the idea of shooting Bobby in the knees and crawling past him like a sissy. Anyhow, after 90 plus minutes of crawling, we busted out of the brush and were instantly on the banks of the creek. One moment we were worn down with the grind of crawling where bears only tread, and the next moment we were living the dream. You've never seen a group of men string their fly rods so fast. This was my moment in time. I felt so in step with who I was at my core and what I desired. I wasn't sitting on the park bench feeding those obese rodents at the foot of a picturesque mountain. I was standing in a creek, teeming with rainbow, German brown, and brook trout, as well as grayling and salmon, and there was no evidence that any other human being had ever been there before. No bobbers hung up in the trees, no worms or chicken liver containers, no empties, and no footprints in the sand. Well, at least no human footprints. In my quest to rule out other humans having been there, I lost count of the bear tracks. But one particular set caught my eye. I stepped up and I planted my size 13 boot entirely inside the pad portion of the impression, and it fit with room to move. I quickly called the guys over and we collectively oohed and awed as mature men do. So, how big's a bear gotta be to have a foot that big? Nobody answered, but we all knew the answer was big. Really, really big. 
The river seemed so perfect where we all emerged from, and everyone was eyeing the first couple of pools. I'd always felt that you stock your fly fishing spots the same way a Rocky Mountain bow hunter stocks an elk. You don't just rumble up on it and flop a fly out there with a textbook cast and expect to catch the wall hanger of your dreams. No. You read the water. You watch the currents and eddies. And sometimes you even hide behind a rock or on the edge of a bend. Sometimes you literally sneak up on the fish. The truth is, I let them have those first two spots because in my mind they'd been blown already. And I moved downstream. And the slaughter began. There was a large rock in the middle of the creek, creating a little rift to each side. At first I cast from a distance and hit the near rift repeatedly and caught arctic grayling with each cast. I can tell you that it takes precisely eight grayling in a row to ruin a fly. The rock called my name. The creek was mildly deep and modestly wide. If you were cautious, you could wade across it anywhere. But in a few places, it would test your skill. I worked my way out to the rock and climbed upon it. It was about three feet square with a flat, slightly angled edge on the top. While I ended up with a little bit of water in my waders, this rock elevated me high above the water and changed my perspective considerably. This perspective thing was kicking my tail all up and down the Glen Allen Highway. First I saw pictures of McKinley and then I stood at the foot of it, a much different perspective in person. Then we stood on a road overlooking the creek, and within a few short minutes and one step, our perspective completely changed. And then after fighting the brush and the roots for over an hour and a half, one step changed our perspective as we stepped out of the brush and onto the shores of the creek. Anyhow, standing on the rock, my perspective changed again. I could see holding zones, and standing on that rock proved to be a distinct advantage. I caught a stupid number of fish that day. Yet nothing was quite as fulfilling as standing on that rock and looking down to see the claw marks of the last bear to fish from that same rock. I can't believe I totally missed it while I was climbing up. Something about the perspective of being too close to them while I was climbing onto the rock that I couldn't see them, but from the height of my six-foot, four-inch frame, I could clearly see two sets of claw marks from the front to the back of the rock. I was dumbfounded. With my long legs, it was relatively easy for me to climb up on that rock, but for some bear, possibly even the big one, it was a stretch. And given their short legs, they'd have to claw their way up to the top of that rock. And I was fishing in his spot. I could picture him sitting on that rock, or even fighting other bears during the salmon run for position on the rock. But that day, it was mine. It was my turn to leave my footprints on that rock. Reliving this memory puts a huge smile on my face. I wonder sometimes if in the bear community in Alaska there isn't a mama bear out there that tucks her cubs in for bed as they prepare to hibernate and tells them a story that has a line in it like, somebody's been fishing from my rock and he's got huge feet. Whether it was our wisdom of traveling in groups and not getting separated and making lots of noise that kept the bears at bay, I'm reminded of the line in Psalm 23, 4, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But as great as seeing Mount McKinley in person was, 
Experiencing the adventure of Peter's Creek made something come alive in me. It would ignite something in me that had laid dormant for years. The McKinley part of the trip, while aesthetically pleasing, was planned and calculated and safe. Drive X miles, buy a bus ticket, stay on the bus until the visitor's center, exit the bus, look at the mountain, enjoy, repeat the prior steps in reverse order, and arrive home safely. For some of the guys on that trip, it was a stretch, and it was dangerous, but not for the five on Peter's Creek. We wandered deeper into a slightly more remote part of nature in search of something we didn't even know existed, but we were created for. We stood on the edge of a cliff, longing for what we could see at a distance, unable to calculate the proper method of success. Then, bang, something happens and we're pot committed. It's not like there's no turning back as if there was a choice of will and pride. No, there's no turning back because there is no option to do so. Mosquito and bear-infested brush stand between you and your dream, between you and your fulfilled desire, and dare I say between you and God's call on your life. You don't get through these times focusing on what's in front of you. You get through these times focusing on what's beyond what's in front of you. It's a delicate art. Living in and dealing with the present while pressing toward what God has shown you from the mountaintop. As I wrap up quickly today, I'd like you to think of the times in this story in which you heard the word perspective and how perspective can change, but the goal and the dream and the calling does not. Remember that perspective is not the entirety of a situation. It's not the totality of reality. It's only part of the bigger picture. This week, I would challenge you to pick one of the following characters in the scriptures and gnaw on their stories in life as recorded in the Bible. And think about the dream, the goal, the calling, the anointing, and consider how they had to contend with the fact that it never changed while their perspective was in constant flux. Which of these characters brings you hope and encouragement? Is it Joseph, who was given a dream only to be sold from one slave owner to another and eventually lands in prison before the dream is fulfilled? Or is it Joshua, who tastes the promised land but is denied its fulfillment for 40 years because of 10 fearmongers? Is it David, who's anointed king but has to live like a fugitive for years before actually taking the throne? Or are you like a Paul, who's called to preach the word to Caesar in Rome, but finds himself imprisoned, beaten, and continuously persecuted? Dig into one of these stories this week. If you don't know the references, check out the show notes. I'll list them there for you. But read it like a novel, like a character profile, in surviving the circumstances in front of you, in pursuit of the things that God has intended for you, things that are beyond your imagination. And remember that your perspective is only part of the whole picture. Get to know the one who can see it all. I'm Nate Vinio, and this has been Something to Gnaw on. Until next week, God bless.